everyone. Welcome to the monumental episode three of Mythic Morons. I'm Janie. And I'm Sid. Uh, so Sid, let's do a weekly catch up. I um, I saw that you watched Honey Boy. Yeah, man. So yeah, just like I was telling you earlier, like Amazon has just been a gold mine to find movies lately. Um, shout out Amazon Prime Video for that. And yeah, Honey Boy, which is like this biopic like i'm hesitant to call it a biopic but it's written by shia labeouf and it's kind of a story in his life like did you hear about this movie it came out last year yeah i was actually gonna attempt to see it in theaters um i never got around to it but um i I do know shia it's like it's like shia's magnum opus it's his it's his baby project yeah this like it, it, it was just kind of like the first thing we've we've heard from him in a while too like he's he kind of went missing or he kind of went just under the radar for a while i think the um, word you're looking for is he kind of went a little nuts yeah i mean what was the last thing we kind of saw of him it was that um the just do it video of him standing in front of the green screen remember that uh there was that and then there was also he will not divide us that whole thing that he did i don't know I don't remember that. What I don't mean. What's that about? It was like a public art project after Trump got elected. Oh yeah, that's when he put like the webcams up and something about that, right? Yeah, and then internet trolls quickly. Uh, oh yeah, destroyed Probably that. That I, I, I remember seeing some shit also where he he binge watched all of his movies in one sitting, like in a movie theater with a bunch of people, and it's so cool to see like he's watching some of his old stuff like some of the even steven's old movies and stuff like that and he, he's just like a smiley happy guy and then he gets to the transformers phase of his life and it's just like facepalm the whole way through and you're, you just feel bad for that like wow this guy put almost 10 years of like five eight ten years of his life into that franchise and like just to kind of like go with the way it did but Anyways, let's get on conversation with Honey Boy. Honey Boy is Shia LaBeouf's, I can say, comeback into into just the public attention, but not only that, as a way to kind of just see him in a different light. Like you just said, he, he kind of went nuts, and this movie kind of gets to the roots of that, I want to say. Like what, what drives a guy into that kind of extreme of life, of that kind of like, you know, just uh, high energy, high pace kind of character that he is like if he, he he was a character just not the regular celebrity and the movie honey boy kind of is the beginning roots of his life from like the even steven days till today like the modern day shia labeouf um, so it's a very so a quick personal yeah, project a very personal project and he said that he wrote the entire film while he was in rehab which um the film kind of even addresses that it's, a, it's kind of a meta film because it, it takes place, uh, a lot of the scenes take place when he was in rehab and it kind of addresses the fact that he's writing the film that we're watching. Um, so a little bit about the film, it's directed by a woman named Alma Harrell and she's a first time director. This is her first film along with Shia writing the script for the first time um, and it stars Lucas Hedges as Otis. Um, that's the character, so Otis is the main character and he um, kind of embodies what Shia, kind of his experiences and his, his growing up years and stuff like that. So, and Shia plays his own father. So that's the interesting bit in it. He plays his own father in the movie. Um, and the movie's kind of starts with him as a child actor. And we don't really know much about those years. We, you know, where did you watch even Stevens like, growing up? No, the first thing I saw of him was Holes and 
holes holes, holes fucking huge. slaps dude that's bro yes that was a school that was a big school movie back in the day right oh yeah so we had the minivan with the dvd player in the back and that shit that shit and finding nemo were the only two movies let's the long road trip movies big time was zero zero was the man remember that guy yo so holes was like peak peak like shia labeouf i would say like growing up in that in the even stevens movie i, I want to say that was like early 2000s let me just pull it up for for factual referencing but yeah i never even, even i never watched movie. the even stevens what what even is that no Oh, no, man. I've never, so, I've never even heard of even it. Even Stevens was, you haven't heard of Even Stevens? What the well, fuck? Well, like maybe like in, like passing, but never. Um, okay, yeah, I, I got you. you. Never got into it. Like that was one of the, like early two thousands Disney Channel, like really iconic original series, and that's what like, made Shia kind of um, break out. I guess you could say. Um, and the movie came out in two thousand three. So it was it was like where he he and his family go to vacation and they kind of get stuck on this island and they're they yeah they get into a lot of like stupid shit. It's got remember like uh, Dennis the Menace like those oh god yeah the back end of the era. It was like that kind of uh, like that kind of charm comedy I guess you could say yeah just like a goofball comedy movie. But, but this, um, so this Honey Boy is yeah. not a goofball comedy movie. No, it's it's. I don't know what to call it. Like I, I kind of started by saying it's a biopic, but it's um. It's dramatized extremely, right? Very, yeah, very. It, it's not trying to be like an account, like on a chronological basis, like from day one to where he is today. It's not like taking that route of storytelling. It's very much, almost like, a, a look back on somebody's life. Like so, I, I kind of had this written down. Like the whole film, he's kind of within therapy, and he's talking to talk like the older version of himself he's talking to therapists and he's trying to figure out his trauma which is heavily related to his father and so then through those kind of transitions we flash back into his youth and i thought the way that alma harrell like the director transitioned was so like so fantastic and original for like a first-time director i i had never seen it it was um i just i don't want to really get into spoilers i would really want people to kind of watch it and see what i'm talking about but there was instances where you see the roots of Shia LaBeouf's acting, like what got him into acting, what within his own family drama drove him into kind of a character, you know, like off screen. He's just a very up, 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 not uptight, upbeat character, a very energized person. So you kind of see the roots of that. I thought that was cool for um, the director to kind of be like so, so imaginative. Like it was... It was like a, a mix and match of different genres. Like there was some surrealist stuff going on in there. There was some uh, really melodrama stuff, but all in like a really easygoing package of a film. Like you know those you know those kind of '90s vibe films. You know what I mean? Where uh, the aesthetic is just like the sun sundown aesthetic, film grain, really uh, just like a easygoing vibe of a movie. It's one of those. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely I explain that. I'll check yeah, it I kind out. of explained that bad, but it was it's it's an, I don't know how this movie didn't get a lot of recognition at awards last year because it looks like one of those movies that at independent movie festivals would have gotten a lot of attention. It was showing at Princess in Waterloo, so I knew it was sort of more of an indie movie sort of thing. Yeah, I, I regret not watching in theaters. This was one I was kind of like keeping an eye on last year, but yeah, I'm happy Amazon put it out there. That's great. Yeah. 
Um, I don't know if you watched Shia's Hot Ones interview on YouTube, but he um, he seems like definitely more down to earth nowadays than than since yeah. 2016, since we last saw him. Yeah, that's how long it's been. Yeah, it's almost been three, three, four years out of the spotlight. And I guess during that time, he was really just writing this movie kind of in therapy and um, reflecting on his own life. So he's come out, I guess, the person he is now. And after making this movie, he's just a lot more, I guess, self-realized. He understands himself maybe better and how to how to output his energy. So I'm really excited to see if he continues writing films, maybe direct or starring in more of his movies, because I would for sure want to watch it. He, he hasn't lost his charm, by the way, either. He's still funny as fuck. Like, this guy well, is a very underrated. charismatic dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's actually a roundtable. Um, I think Hollywood Reporter might have made a video, one of those kind of uh, sit-down videos with a bunch of writers in the room and he got invited to that and seeing him in kind of like a grown-up setting you know suit and tie on and talking technical film stuff with a bunch of other legends you know in the room i can't exactly remember who was there who else was there but it was cool to see like this grown-up version of somebody you kind of grown up with yourself yeah i do mostly know him from like his transformers days as do most people probably but um yeah like that interview on Hot Ones, it kind of shed light on just how much of a movie buff he is and how much like he just has a, a love for cinema. Yeah. And you wouldn't really expect that out of, a, out of a movie star like him, but I guess that's where he's like transitioning now and I hope to see him write more in the future. Yeah. I think he has a, he has a lot of experiences himself coming from being like a child actor in Hollywood um, and just kind of being on his own path. Like, like you said, he's a movie buff. He's a cinephile, so... I think I'm sure he's going to get into more writing and yeah, like referring to that hot ones interview, like he's just a humble guy, you know, like he's like, I think like he, he could, you could be buddies with him if you just walked into him on the street. Like he oh, he's just be like, a great oh guy. He's just, he's yeah. like, it was one of the, the most like out of all the hot ones interviews, it was one of the most like heartwarming, I guess you could say mm-hmm. for sure. It's, Cause it's just the way it's just the vibe he gives off now. It's like, he's, yeah. he's not like so much crazy more. He's a more about like, hippy dippy oh. peace and love yeah. that type of stuff he's much more hippy dippy he's much more going with the flow probably just gets smokes a ton of weed or whatever he does actually no he went to rehab so i would not think he's smoking a lot of weed nowadays but um yeah just a great guy all around great movie so that would be my recommendation for the week if you guys have not checked it out the movie is called honey boy directed by alma harrell written by shia labeouf and starring shia labeouf so yeah, go check it out. And oh, you mentioned Transformers. And there's a little Transformers Easter egg within the movie. Uh, it's the opening. It's like the opening few shots of the film, and like it, nothing explicitly tells you, you know, anything. But if you've seen Transformers, you're like, okay, yeah, he's making a very obvious statement here. So I, I thought that was pretty funny. Okay, I'll watch out for that when I do my watch through. Yeah, cool. And what um, about you, Cheney? What have you been? What have you been up to this week? What have you been watching? The only thing I really watched this week is I. Um, I didn't even realize like it came so fast, but I finished up the uh, I finished up season four of Rick and Morty. Oh yeah, how um, was that? Uh, whew. that's a tough. How would you question. compare this season? How would you compare this season to uh, past seasons? Because I know they've had more time on this season than other ones. Here's the thing about this season. Um, this season seems like a recovery season. Um, what do you mean by that? Season three was pretty depressing and all, all things considered mm-hmm. like yeah. when, when they did season three and they're like, this is going to be our darkest season yet. Just like breaking the fourth wall in the first episode. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it ended up being that way. And it was like, it was still fun and zany, but like it, it, it a lot of what they, they did in that third season really brought you down and it was more canonical. It was more episodic, which I appreciated, but, um, I thought they could find a happy medium and I think they did that in this season. Um, they always hint at the canonical stuff, but like they went back to season two, season one things where it's just um, Dan Harmon's classical how to write an episode, how to write a story. And he just does that, but he does it in a sci-fi setting like no other no other person can. Like the writing is so clever. I can't even... Right. I don't want to be that fuck because I hate the fucking fan base. I can't stand the fucking fan base of Rick and Morty. I can't. I can't. I can't interact with those people. I can just watch the show and enjoy it. And that's what I do. So I don't want to be that, like, that's you the need- best thing. I think, yeah, the less kind of, uh, let's, yeah, I agree with you. There's a lot of, uh, too much theorizing that goes on in fan bases. Too much of like, let's try to make our own, figure it out ourselves. Like, I don't know. And they, a lot, that's a lot of what happens in this season is they break the fourth wall. They're like, come on come on, Morty, let's do a regular Rick and Morty adventure and stuff like that. And they, um, yeah. So it's almost like Dan Harmon's like laughing at the audience himself in this one. Like don't he's laughing at the audience and he's laughing at the writing room in, in a lot of these episodes. And it's, it, it's so obvious, but it's, yeah. it's written into the story. So it's, it's really fun. Um, I will say that, um, the season finale was, probably one of the best episodes out of the whole series though um because it really it it did touch up on that canonical stuff it really um it brought things from season two and season three all in yeah yeah i heard i heard about some of the stuff so without getting into spoilers because people have already kind of hinted at me where where it goes but would you say um would you say it ends kind of on a cliffhanger note or I know they're making more episodes. That's for sure. But is it, how would you say it ended for you? Were you satisfied with it? Are you, are you excited for new episodes of Rick and Morty or was this kind of like a, yeah, we'll see where it goes kind of thing. Um, there's a line in the last episode where Rick goes, Oh fuck. Now we have to do a star Wars. So I really enjoyed (laughs) that episode quite a bit. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, but it ends on a pretty, not sad note, but like, there's definitely some character progression, which, That's cool. That's, yeah, which, yeah. which is, which I like about Rick and Morty. Cause it's like, I can just, I can either sit down and watch a totally separate episode that's separate from everything else. And it's just fun and funny. Like this is one of the, this is one of the shows I laugh the most at. Um, but it can also bring in the plot elements they've introduced before. So, um, yeah, I think at this point where season four is, they built a obviously a big enough universe of of kind of ideas, and it's like you're saying. Like, I've I've gone up to maybe season two, season th- no, sorry, episode two of this season. So I'm not completely finished yet, but from what I've heard, kind of, um, and like they're they're getting back to their roots or bringing back old plot lines. I've, I think that's just a, a testament of like good storytelling. You know, they're not they're not moving too fast out of out of like just the story they're telling like they, they still are telling a story it's not all about going into different universes and just 
seeing all this crazy shit but you know dan Harmon is one of the one of the best storytellers to like really nail structure and nail storytelling so episodic structure especially because he he also wrote community which is again one of my favorite comedies on on tv even though i just discovered it like yeah if you guys don't know like dan Harmon has been behind most of our generation's like prime television and he's he's collaborating with the russo brothers like take that in you know community is like one of those og shows that that is like there's roots there's things in rick and morty that you can see go back to community and i i can appreciate that i can i can i like to draw a line from from his work and be like yeah he's really just getting better as a writer and as a storyteller so i'm excited to to continue watching the season and hopefully in another episode i'll share my my thoughts on this season but do you have any anything else to add to this uh no nothing really just um finish it up if you can it's it's a good season and i think it's um i can't say it's the second best or the best yet i I gotta kind of rewatch the series again i usually rewatch it once a year anyways so mm-hmm. um i mean yeah rick and morty is one of those tv shows that like if, if it's on youtube live like if there's one of those live streams that has 10 hours of rick and morty episodes playing i'll just kind of fall asleep to it because i can like close my eyes and just listen to it it's like music at that point it is like one of the best forms of escapism that i can think of that like i can just think like oh what do i want to do well i don't really want to watch anything new or get anything new well i'll go back and i'll watch three episodes from season two or yeah and even when you go back that's it has huge rewatch factor rewatchability even when you go back you can watch the same over episode over again and still kind of like pick up on new threads or or, you know like there's still always a new sense of enjoyability when you're watching that show and yeah that's it's probably one of the best shows out there i would say yeah for sure and um season four exemplified that especially the season finale so um I, I definitely think you should finish it up. I'm going to, yeah, I'll try and get that done this week so I can kind of give some of my thoughts on the season. So stay tuned for a continuation of Rick and Morty talk. That would be a cool segment of a show, Rick and Morty talk. But yeah, I'm sure there's podcasts dedicated to the entirety of Rick and Morty and stuff like that. Oh yeah, like YouTube channels like Wisecrack that have all those Rick and Morty theory videos. They got an entire fucking podcast dedicated to Rick and Morty. It's like, I don't know how you fill the space in between seasons, but whatever. Take, imagine having people in your office completely dedicated to Rick and Morty theories and just like kind of writing essays on that shit, which I'm sure people are doing right now. Just, you know, whatever, diving deep into that universe to make sense of it all. But and that's what they, they make I fun of the audience for doing that. Amazing things to enjoy. Yeah. They make fun of the audience for doing that so many times throughout the show. I it's know. Like, yeah. They, they just, they really trying to like let people know. It's like, just like shut up and just watch the fucking show. And I, I know that sounds harsh but it's like that's all it is it's just a cartoon it's a funny cartoon just just watch it anyways yeah anyways um do you want to move on to what we had planned from last week yeah so main discussion time or what yeah so um last week we decided to look at two movies and see how um black and white is used in in um in two different movies so mm-hmm. we had sin city and lighthouse which are stylistically very different and they use black and white very differently so i think that was probably a good contrast to choose and they're both modern day films that are are choosing to use black and white that's kind of one thing we were going for uh not just 
black and white films out of necessity because they're old but like i guess kind of what we're looking at is you know why in the modern day of storytelling would somebody choose to tell a story in black and white and i thought like both these films obviously kind of they did it for two different reasons they're two very different films stylistically um so let's start with sin city i guess uh what what, what did you think about sin city very interesting movie probably one of the most uniquely stylistic movies i've ever seen i don't think this movie will age i really don't um just because the style is so out there like, you know what i mean i wanted to try and compare it to other things i've seen visually it's it, it's very kind of it reminds me a lot of Zack snyder's work it's like just the visually striking images like each frame can be a very powerful image on itself so i think there's a connection there but it's a very of its era movie it came out in 2005 and it's purely digital like you can you can see it from any frame that heavy cgi is used but it that I, w- I wouldn't say that's a hindrance to it that's never like a negative factor like you see in action movies today with how they use cgi so like cgi is almost integral to the way sin city needs to tell its story in this kind of graphic so just a little history on sin city it's a set the movie is set on a series of graphic novels by the writer frank miller um and the, the film is structured almost like uh, the telling of a couple of these stories, almost Quentin Tarantino-esque storytelling of, of chapters on of nonlinear storytelling of different chapters, different storylines connecting, that kind of thing. And the director of the film is Robert, Robert Rodriguez, the director of Spy Kids. Uh, shout out to that franchise. And also Frank Miller co-directed it. So not only did he write the story, but he's also coming to direct the film. So I want to start with asking you, um, did you ever watch the movie kind of growing up or was this your first viewing? This was my first feeling for sure. Um, I've heard of the movie um, while growing up and never really piqued my interest, but um, I'm glad it did this time around because I, was, I remember watching and listening to people saying, I was like, this is probably one of like the most stylish movies you can ever watch. And the black and white is a, is a big part of that. Um, and that's a big Frank Miller influence because he really wanted to take the pages out of his graphic novel and just make a movie. Like, if you know what I mean, it's like the, the, every single frame within this movie emulates a page out of a graphic novel. Yeah. It, it's, I had this in my notes and it is the most comic book movie. Like, I think it's so true to the style of comic books that it's the definition of a comic book movie. I think it's literally pages ripped off the or it's panels of the comics ripped off the pages that are like just kind of visualized on film and that that was cool and yeah i never watched this movie when it came out either um i thought yeah it was maybe i was too young when it came out or something but it never just caught my attention and i'm almost glad i'm watching it a little older now so i can appreciate what the story is and kind of what it is telling and it's not just this gory action flick it's not just this heavily stylized uh like blockbuster movie it's really like frank miller stories in general are just really really smart well-written stories with rich characters and amazing settings amazing world building and you get all of that in sin city yeah for sure and um i think it lends well to this movie what i said on how i don't think you'll be able to date this movie um other action movies at the time like they use cgi in ways to 
do special effects, whereas this movie uses CGI as a means of like artistic choice. So it's it it matches everything and it it will stay consistent throughout. You know, as it ages, it's it stays consistent. This is this movie's from two thousand and five, and like I, I hardly yeah. noticed. But you can, yeah, it's it's very purposeful in how it uses special effects, and it's it's very it's like trademark. You know, like if if you've never seen the movie but you saw a frame of this movie somewhere, you would know like oh, this is Sin City, the movie, uh, based off the comic books. Like it, there's so much history behind just this style, and I think it just kind of established its its own use of color, its own use of vfx and cgi and like it, it'll stand out i remember like reading about this movie in like film textbooks like in first year so and i i'm like wow like sin city is in a film textbook that's pretty crazy this is a movie i should probably look at so it's it's definitely a movie that's gonna be like lived on and and people are gonna remember it for for pretty much revo- revolutionizing how you could use visual effects and color in modern cinema i would say and that's where I'll get into a little bit of um, how I don't think this movie is very representative of how to use black and white. I think this movie is more representative of how to utilize color. Yeah, yeah, I would say the same thing. It's, it's yeah, and you know what? That's what I had a lot of questions kind of going back and forth on. It's like they establish rules of color and then it's... Okay, actually, I want to ask you, what did you... What did you think of that? What did you um, think of how they used color in this film? So just like you, I was pretty confused because um, at the start of the film, we get introduced to Bruce Willis's character, the detective. And um, as it works through that scene um, and people get shot in that scene, um, there isn't there isn't blood blood or there is blood, but it's not colored. And I thought, no, well, that's interesting. Yeah, why would the they blood choose? Is white. Yeah, why would they choose to do that? And then later, when you get introduced to another character and he bleeds, his blood is highlighted like ruby red. Yeah. So I thought, what the hell is going on here with regards to use of color in this movie? And then I thought, what if color and the color highlights are um, point of view driven? meaning whatever character you're in the point of view of for the scene, whatever they value or whatever they want or whatever they highlight gets highlighted by color. Does that make sense? What do you mean? So like if they're, if, yeah, I don't know, kind of expand on that. So Bruce Willis's character gets shot um, and his blood isn't red, but the way his character acts is that he ignores the pain he ignores the blood it's not important to him whereas if you move on to mickey rourke's character which is the next character introduced and he's sort of like a um established as some sort of maniac and he likes and he likes that stuff right blood is always highlighted with him yeah that's interesting so it's kind of what represents it's almost like a representation of the character itself Yes, so whatever POV character we're following, whatever color gets highlighted, it's being highlighted because it's value to the character. Yeah, I thought the same thing from that opening, and I, I started paying attention to color early on from that scene too. So when he gets shot by the docs, I guess, 
and I noticed the color was or the color of the blood was white there and in different instances they still choose to use white blood and then in different instances they'll choose to use red blood and I would I like that's a really good um kind of way to look at it what you just said and that could really possibly actually that makes sense to me the way I thought, almost saw it was when you see red blood that's almost like an indicator of somebody about to die like I have a very less almost like really surface value view of it so when Bruce Willis gets shot there's no red blood so I automatically kind of assumed he wasn't going to die it was also the opening of the film so why would he die but and each kind of time going forward when red blood is shown it's signified in a way of death or not even red blood but the color red in general so if you look back to the opening of the film like the opening prologue bit where uh the woman in the red dress is standing on the balcony and the hitman comes up and kills her so she's wearing red she has red lipstick and the rest of the scene is a very contrast black and white so that was almost like the rule I made up in my head that okay the color red or blood will indicate death but I realized that wasn't even a rule because they kind of break that going forward so I yeah I actually kind of like your your point of view on it that it's a, a subjective it's a subjective kind of understanding of the character yeah nice right so it's um again with Mickey Rourke's character it's like Goldie the the woman that gets murdered um while in bed with him um she was fully colored and he um referred to her as like heaven and godliness yeah goddess heavenliness right um and that was everything he he like cited her quote-unquote perfect breasts and then even like the smell of her and then when you meet um ugh, I, I can't i don't want to get into spoilers this early but i do um, so spoilers, just watch Sin City. It's on Amazon Prime Video. Again, the probably the best spot to get movies right now. Um, but when he finds Wendy, Goldie's sister, she doesn't really radiate any of that energy because she lacks like the smell. Like he, like he knows it's not her because you know something's off. He can realize that, and then that's that's. Um, that's shown through her not also like that's shown through her staying black and white until um yeah until his later second on his second film. last scene yeah that's actually that's an interesting thing you just mentioned about women in this film so i kind of have i've kind of developing a little perspective in my own head now so i noticed that the will when most of the women in this film are colorized so there's a scene when marv walks into a bar and pretty much the scene or the movie goes colorized at that point like marv is in color everybody in the bar is in a very like desaturated palette and all the women are in color for the most part in that scene and even in other scenes when they go to um old town and the women in old town most of them have bits of color kind of highlighted through them there's the girl with the blue eyes i remember her um and there's still yeah there's just little bits of color throughout the women so i'm almost looking at it now as color as a signifier of like what people's desires might be in this world um so like violence like that's why we see blood as a red symbol like standing out a lot or women and it could be just like another way like kind of just establish this world that's all about greed and corruption and sex and drugs and you know it's a dark world so it's standing out all these kind of symbols of that what do you think 
yeah i think that sort of adds to like the subjective pov like of course like when you walk into a strip bar everything is going to be colorized because you know because of the guy you are you're just you're looking at it all you're just enticed by all everything you see there yeah exactly yeah Yeah. that that, exactly i think that lends to what you just said about subjective point of view um it's not just colorizing things because it's going to look cooler in red or whatever there is definitely um it's purpose-driven yeah so that's what I mean, but, but um, about the the color. So I think color is utilized very, very well, and it like a really, really stylistic way. It's like a lot of things are unrealistic in terms of use of color, but it's still a very yeah. good use of color because you know this isn't really like a realistic movie. This is a no. I was just about to say it's a very everything is pretty much unrealistic. It's it's trying to be more of a graphic novel. It's like a graphic movie, kind of a hybrid of the mix. Um, like I said, like it's it's just it's to the T a comic book film, so and it embraces every aspect of that, which is like just the the crazy action and stuff you would see. So it really much it's it's trying to create its own rules of the world. It's trying to create its own um, standard for cinema in a way. Yeah. Um, other things I noticed in terms of how they use black and white. Um, they really utilize shadows a lot in this movie. It's that, used they as utilize what? shadows. They they highlight. Shadows, yeah. They use it as a means to highlight shadows. In a lot of cases, I notice scenes within this movie. Um, they wouldn't have characters move within the scenes, but they'd have their shadows move. So you could sort of create yeah. really cool shots, um, establishing positions of characters and scenes without actually showing them, which is really useful in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. and that's that's another like kind of advantage of the cgi like i thought that could that was used to kind of enhance that effect of like contrasting light and dark there was like it was almost like so there's like the german expressionism era of film that that had painted sets to exaggerate the shadows and and the buildings and the setting and i thought this movie kind of was really expressionistic in that way where uh the way it uses color to kind of build the world around it and and the sense of who these characters are it's just exaggerating like marv is this is this brutish guy he's a big muscle like jughead kind of guy and it literally like takes try after try to finally kill him or like to try and kill him that was so the best scene in the fucking movie that, yeah that was so fucking cool when it's like you guys gotta try harder you know like is Holy that all shit. you got, you he, pansies? He a, uh, he's a great A badass. A great A badass. Like, Yo, shout out to fucking Mickey Rourke in that movie. He fucking killed it. He, You don't, like, the fact you're telling me now it's Mickey Rourke and I can see it on a Wikipedia page, It's it wasn't Mickey Rourke in the film. Like, that was a character ripped out of a comic book. Like, the prosthetic makeups they had on his face to make him look, like, all scarred up and shit. And he just looked like a comic book character on film. It was so cool. Um... And yeah, so it's just like it it you can't even call it like uh I would really just put this in a league of its own in, in the comic book genre. Like let this sit in its own little corner of a great movie, you know? Yeah, and it I don't think I don't think people should try to emulate it, is if that's a weird thing to say. It shouldn't it like there's no need to have a remake of this or I know there's a sequel, and I think that was also directed by Robert Rodriguez, but yeah, let this movie kind of stand by itself as the Sin City movie, because you got Frank Miller as a producer, 
and director on it. It's like to the T a Frank Miller story. And, you know, I would really love to get into more Frank Miller stuff on the show and kind of talk to him, talk about him as a creator and more of the stories. Like he's written Watchmen, he's written Sin City. And so like he has this theme of creating like very dark worlds that have analogies to the politics of today. And like, it's just great storytelling, man. Like it, this is kind of on a league of its own of graphic stories. Um, so like I would want to recommend it to people who are, who want to see like an adult comic book movie or kind of a very just entertaining film in general that has a good story to it. Yeah. I wanted to ask you because you've read Watchmen, like the graphic novel, um, like is Frank Miller's style just like, so is it just, is it so recognizable now to you? Yeah. It's, it's incredibly visual. Like it's, it's pure visual. Like, the way so Watchmen and Sin City are such contrasting stories in the graphic novel sense because Sin City's like like we're talking about a black and white story with this ex like extra use of color, this kind of specialty use of color. Whereas Watchmen is this very visual and kind of colorful with a the palette is really unique for Watchmen. It's it's kind of retro sixties vibe palette, but dark if that makes sense like it uses the palette of bright colors but in a dark way like if you if you look at if you look at some of the comic pages of Watchmen you can see like it's just this desaturated yet vibrant color whereas Watchmen or sorry Sin City still visually striking he he uses a limited sense of color or a limited use of color to still kind of have a have a point with it have some kind of a point with what he's doing visually um it's pretty much the the difference between the watchman movie compared to the watchman graphic novel and sin city compared to the sin city graphic novel both of them i would say are shot for shot almost remakes of the stories they're trying to tell like i haven't read sin city but i can tell there are straight up ripped off comic book pages from the story but the difference is is that sin city as a movie kind of really nails the world and the characters um it's again it's frank miller as a director so these are his characters that he's kind of talking about and making but the style of storytelling man it's just like it's uh it's it's cool it's just fucking cool yeah like we can talk about Watchmen in another episode and i would like to compare the book to the movie and like i had a shaky relationship with that movie but this is one of this Sin City movie is one of those kind of movies that I could get into reading the graphic novel after it now that I've watched the movie. I've um, consumed some Frank Miller content. Um, I don't know if you know this, but he wrote um, probably the most famous Batman story, um, The Dark Knight Returns. Yeah, yeah. I watched The Dark Knight Returns movie, the animated movies. have not read the stories, but yeah, that's a really uh, a really different take on Batman also. Yeah, and I could I could tell while watching Sin City, um, since like those animated movies are pretty much one for one reshoots of the comic book, like like Frank Miller is such a visual storyteller that's like that needs to be part of it. But I could also feel his writing style come through in Sin City the way it did in those animated movies of The Dark Knight Returns, mm-hmm. um, like political commentary on. Like Sin City was sort of like a microcosm of of corrupt America. Yeah. 
and it's it's so it's so weird that we're choosing these movies that like they come out super like this movie is 15 years old but you can watch it today and still see relevancies to the world today so that's why i said i can appreciate this movie now more as an adult whereas as a kid if i watched this in 2005 when i was six uh it could have just been like one of those badass movies that went over my head that was you know like just oh like this was fun to watch but you wouldn't understand it whereas now i think like if you were as a young adult or an adult to watch it you can kind of see similarities to the world or just uh yeah i guess in the best way of that sense and that's one of my favorite things about frank miller as a storyteller they're all dark stories or for the most part very dark stories but it shows you a glimpse of something into our world like some dark corner that might be bigger than it actually is like yeah i don't know just read frank miller stuff yeah um and on a last note um this is out to people that enjoy making film including you sid um there should be more noir style inner monologues with regards to characters because that was probably one of my favorite things in Sin City. oh yeah just... so yeah you like the narration yeah like the inner monologue narration it's it, it it was like it was my favorite part to just sit back and listen to these gravelly old men talk. And it was super well written. I, I love that opening scene narration when he's talking to the girl. Um it, it's kinda cheesy, it's kinda like nineteen fifties Hollywood throughout the whole movie, like that kind of style. Um It's that's you know what it is? It's that's what it is. It's like the nineteen forties, nineteen fifties style of noir film, but Frank Miller's version of it in today's modern world. Like it's it's that's really what it is it's a neo-noir film in the truest sense like that last story where um bruce willis's character is full-on detective mode trying to find this girl um like that's in the truest sense like a re like remakes of a lot of 1940s noir films and this takes what those films do with setting and world building and the use of elements to tell stories um and stuff like that and really adds the value of modern technology and color to tell a new kind of noir story and yeah i can appreciate the hell out of that one of the things about narration though that i can kind of when i don't want to say a gripe with because it's within the style and the intention of what the filmmakers are trying to do but i almost thought as it was going it almost became a little bit of overuse of narration it was like a bit too much of like speaking what is exactly happening and what we're exactly seeing which i can get okay like comic books do that so maybe they were trying to be very much replicating comic books what do you think um i didn't i never really got that sense um i thought because the narration was from the pov perspective it always added some sort of new information or some sort of new context that changed the scene um, i'll give you an example of what i mean there was a scene so when marv when mickey Rourke's character goes to old town the the town that's kind of controlled by the prostitutes and he sees the women there and he's like, oh yeah, I used to have a fling with this woman once upon a time, uh, like paraphrasing obviously. And then the woman says pretty much the exact same thing. So like he's saying it in a narration and then she says it in, in the real life dialogue where she's like, oh yeah, you left me, something like that. So what, yeah, like that was, a, I just laughed at those kind of moments where, where and yeah, so remember Rosario Dawson's character in the movie, her name is um, Gail. And uh, she had a full-on, like, comic book character introduction. She, her line was... Uh, one sec, let me just find it, because I had it written down. She said something like this.
Just, when you see her please. character for the first time, she goes, I tied those knots. That's my specialty. So she's it's like, oh yeah, you're the knot girl in the in the group. That's your that's your ability, huh? Like, you know, it's very comic book introduction. Like, that's who you are, and this is my special power. Like, Oh, I thought that it, was it just a joke the, at her being a prostitute. What's that? I thought it was just a joke at her being a prostitute. What do you mean? Like, she's a prostitute. She ties guys up. Oh, she's, shit. That It could have been, but they didn't play it off for a joke purposes. No, they didn't because really. Was, you're right. Yeah, because she did tie up, like, yeah, I don't know. Like, that, that could work as a joke, and maybe the writers were just trying to be smart there. But in the sense of the story, it was like, I don't know. I kind of saw it as, like, trying to be that campy comic book style of introducing characters and stuff. I'm here for a movie about the hooker Avengers, though. That was cool, yeah. That was for sure. Like, the Hawkeye, or not the Hawkeye, the, yeah. She was kind of like Hawkeye, I guess. The what was her girl. name? Hayato or something? Crazy Japanese lady that was also kind of sexy. Yeah, who just doesn't speak the whole time. Miho. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Played by Devin Aoki from Tokyo Drift. So, shouts out to her. She's a badass in this movie. Oh, man. So, fucking, Ed, what's his name? Elijah Wood, his character in this movie? How creepy is that, dude? Um, I don't know how he does that thing with his eyes. I don't know if I want to watch The Lord of the Rings after watching this now. I think my I've been like my view on Elijah Wood's character like I can't see that guy as a normal human being anymore. No, he no, Lord played, of the, no, Lord of the Rings will cleanse your palate on Elijah Wood. I should have watched it first then because like this this like just took out any want to see that guy in anything. No, he was I like full on creepo like just played it well I guess. Um, this was like, yeah, he was he was like the fucking biggest creep this is one of the creepiest guys in movie history for sure for sure for sure yeah like and he plays it really well just keeping a sadistic straight face throughout the film and you were saying how do they do the thing with his eyes the white anime eye type of thing no not that like like his actual acting on on how he gets his dead stare like that's not yeah like that's not a normal thing for humans to do no, yeah, I, I, that's what made me feel uncomfortable is that this guy had to get into a place as an actor. It, he had to get into that place, you know what I mean? And that's that's scary. Like, his character in the film is this um, cannibal kind of... He's not just a cannibal. He's just a really scary individual. And he doesn't feel pain, and he doesn't take to any of the any of the beating that uh, Marv's character gives to him and just sits there and stares into into the into the camera just kind of like, what the fuck is this guy doing? Yeah, that was unnerving for me, man. His character was just unnerving. For a character that doesn't speak a line, he makes a lasting impact. Yeah, like, I see, you just said he doesn't speak a line. I didn't even realize that. Like, he, as a character, does and says so much in the film that you're just like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. But shouts out to him as an actor, because that, that was crazy. Um, Speaking of what the fuck, do you want to talk about The Lighthouse? Yeah, that's a good transition into a what the fuck movie. That's probably the what the fuck movie of the week. What the um, fuck movie of a generation? Of the, year, of the generation, of the decade, for sure. Um, so me and Chaney kind of were talking about this movie for a while. Like back in, back in like when it came out, we were talking about watching it in school and stuff. Never got a chance to see it. And then luckily got to see it on Amazon. Shouts out to Amazon, keeping those movies up there. And... Yeah, Chandy, why don't you start with it? Because I know you were looking forward to watching this kind of more so. 
what were your impressions of this movie? Um, oh, fuck. I guess, like, let me just start by saying, um, the movie is directed by Robert Eggers, um, and written by him and his brother. Uh, it came out last year in 2019, and it stars Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe, and it's greatly acted from those guys. It's, like, worth just to watch those guys kind of act. But, yeah, continue your point, Chaney, or what you were going to say. Oh, what was I going to say? Like, Jesus Christ. Um, here's, um, the thing I really, like, this, this movie, on a personal note, hits so many things that I love. So, um... I love character-driven stories. I love dialogue-driven stories. Um, so that this really plays into that. And then, like, little elements. They got little Greek mythology sprinkled in there that I really enjoyed. They got a little um, HP Lovecraft or Lovecraftian horror. A lot of that sprinkled in. Um, I'm glad to see that's becoming a little more mainstream. Um, yeah, and then, this is a perfect kind of movie for the Mythic Morons to break down, I think. It kind of hits the hits the marker on the head for a movie that we should talk about. Yeah. Um, as a, like, as a plot, like, the plot is so simple. This movie, this movie f- fucking had one goal, and that was to tell the story of a guy losing his mind. And that's it. And they do that um, almost perfectly in my mind. I don't know, like, like, um, Robert Pattinson's performance is like, like I'm, I'm now like, I never really liked the guy I know, or not, not, not the guy. I never really liked his acting, but this, this, um, this proved that he, he can do it. So I'm excited for him in Batman and then also in Tenet. But, um, I can't, I don't even know where to start with this movie. It's just, it's, it's all over the place and in a good way. Yeah, I, I want to start with kind of the point you said about it's a really simple plot, yet a very complex story. Um, I, I, I like movies like that, that they, they're not trying to be confusing in plot. Like, usually that works best. You know, simple narrative structure can often lead to uh, just the ability to tell complex stories and rich characters. And that's what this movie does. So Pattinson's character and Willem Dafoe's character, uh, they're both named Thomas, evidently, in the film. Um, and they're both... So one of them, Willem Dafoe's character, is the veteran lighthouse keeper and he's been coming to tend to this lighthouse in particular for years upon years and it's like alluded to over 13 years i guess that like 19 christmases 19 christmas something like that exactly so he has he has no really good connection with his family maybe no family at all um and robert pattinson's character who's a younger lad looking to find work uh, as you do in in this time period um he he gets a job on on this lighthouse and you can see from the beginning there's a a rocky relationship between the two where Willem Dafoe's character is kind of like the very strict um teacher in a way like he's trying to he's trying to get this guy to do all the work in the house for him and Willem Dafoe's character doesn't really do much so uh Pattinson obviously gets pissed off a lot in the movie um but it's like in between all that kind of the dynamic shows a lot between these guys. Um, what did you think on on how how they portrayed the the aspect of going crazy and and isolation in this film? What were you thinking on that? So I um, I thought they did it well because they they established almost. Um, 
just before five minutes in, they established like, okay, Robert Pattinson's character is going to be the POV character for this movie. So, um, I thought they did a good, a good job of focusing on him and, um, his state of mind and the things that, that he focused on, which eventually led to different visual elements of him, um, losing his mind, like with regards to, um, I'm going to get more into some more symbolism stuff, some more HP Lovecraft sort of stuff, but like mermaids and merfolk and fish people, they tend to represent, um, as far as HP Lovecraft goes, like, um, they tend to represent the allure of the sea. Like they, they try to pull you in and like when the mermaid, as the mermaid becomes more and more prominent, you know, first it starts off as that little totem that he found in the bed. And then eventually he starts to have visions of the mermaid. And then eventually he starts to fuck the mermaid. They did a very good job on the prosthetics for a fish pussy, by the way, in this movie. Yeah. Crazy. Um, that was, if you've never seen a mermaid vagina before, you'll see it in this movie. That's for yes. Sure. So like it's, it slowly, slowly escalates using the same visuals again and again. And that's just the mermaid example. Then you have like the logging example, and then you have drinking and then like it's just everything building up to a point and then a breaking point. And um, I thought they did it really, really well. And they made sure it's like, OK, this is the character that's going crazy. And here's the things he's seeing. And like the things he's seeing are fucking wild. Yeah. And there's an interesting thing I notice in how they get you as an audience to see what he's seeing, you know, place him, place you in, in the shoes of um, Winslow, right? That's what Robert Pattinson's character's name is, Winslow? Yes, Winslow. That's his, his character's character name. Character, yeah. So he, so you, we get to learn about these characters that each of them is potentially telling a lie about their life, their kind of backstory of why they're here, what they're doing. Uh, you get a sense I'll kind of get into this my into my points a little later on on them as characters and like and and um, the deceit that they kind of give towards each other I'll get into that a bit but I, I wanted to talk a little bit also about what you were just saying on um, the subjectivity of the character and, and cinema like cinematographically wise how they achieved that um, I noticed in this in how the objective shots were in the shots where you get these kind of medium close-ups or often very close-up shots of, um, for example, Winslow, Robert Pattinson's character, just tightly framed either like in a doorway or just framed within the frame because the film is shot in this three-fourth um, box kind of style aspect ratio. So yeah, a very small aspect ratio. Right, those like that old school 1930s, 1920s film aspect ratio. And the whole film is really just trying to evoke that sense and feel of 1920s, 1930s horror. Um, so what cinematographically wise, how do you say that fucking word in a clean way? Cinematographically? Like, I don't know. Just That's what I'm just, trying to say. Just say how they yeah. use cinematography. That's perfect. How they use cinematography. Eh. How they use cinematography. Gonna, I'm going to keep fumbling it. You guys get what I'm trying to say. How they use it in this film. And I'm a fucking film student. Like, I should get this by now. Four years really it's a lot of syllables don't feel use, bad how they use the technical cinema properties um in 
objectively trying to show you this guy very isolated in this in this kind of harsh setting and then they switch to a subjective point of view you know if you notice they really they rarely edit in this film they rarely cut it's a lot of they a lot of just motion of the camera um a lot so when they switches to the subjective point of view it's taking you from the first person point of view of winslow kind of slowly moving within this white house and discovering this land this kind of really just deserted yet mysterious land you get a sense there's some mystery here and allure of something um that's just hinted at throughout the film so i think a lot of what this film how it encapsulates that that isolation and that that dread is by one just rarely cutting it, it uses a lot of slow movement so people might think oh the movie's slow it's just slow paced but if you can kind of sit through that lack of cutting, it's really just trying to build that sense of dread in you. That what is this lighthouse? What is the mystery going on here? Um, did you did you get that same sense of of like subjective and objective point of views? Now that you bring it up, um, there is a bunch of like like wide shots or um, like yeah, full even room shots yeah. to like show mm-hmm. like. Like objective spacing, object. This is what the characters are doing. This is what the characters are. This talking is the about, setting. Yeah, right? this is where they are. You get a sense of kind of the size of their island, and even the wide shots, it still isolates the character. These small kind of figures within the frame. So yeah. Um. So, but then, like, I get, I, I do get what you mean by like. It's kind of like what Sin City did. Like, there's certain stylistic and visual things that come with subjective point of view within the Mm -hmm. characters in the film. So like it'll do a zoom in on Robert Pattinson. And there's one thing I noticed that kind of like exemplifies your point is um, when do you hear music in this, in this movie? Mostly it's mostly when Robert Pattinson's character Winslow is, is doing something. It's like, Mm -hmm. it might be entirely in his head. Right. But when it's just the two characters actually conversing and the plot is progressing, there's no added noise. There's no real added music it's only as robert pattinson descends that the music yeah. plays and it's like well like let, can i just compliment the soundtrack because it's fucking yeah it's like dreadful I, I in notice, a good way yeah i took notice more of the soundtrack on a second viewing of this movie than the first time it almost like it became so um like well mixed into the the diegesis of the film sounds which is like the sounds that are within the actual uh universe of the film so sounds of like the foghorn and the waves like it, it, it perfectly mixes into that into that kind of just like the environment and nature sounds like that's something i kind of wrote down is like the first 10 minutes like from the opening to like the first 10 minutes of this film is just pure cinema in the sense that all you are given is just the visuals of these two men arriving on the island and the sounds of the foghorn and the score like you said which is just like this hard-hitting brash kind of like they're they're about to land somewhere and you don't know what it is but hold on to your seat you know like it's just this highly intense loud score mixed with the waves crashing so it's just perfectly kind of encapsulating you in this cinematic story and you don't even get dialogue until they sit at a dinner table together well into the movie 10 minutes into the movie um so that kind of leads me into one of my like kind of observations about how this film uses color in particular and i thought it's very different from how sin city uses color like almost the opposite in the sense where 
Sin City is trying to create a new modern style of this mix of graphic novel and using modern day technology of CGI and green screen to to kind of read or remix the black and white kind of thing. This movie is you trying to, in my opinion, bring you as an audience back to this 1920s, 1930s style of cinema and stories in general, where just, just kind of, I had to do research on it. Like what kind of film stocks were they using? And, you know, they picked out this Kodak double X 35 millimeter film, um, which is like films or what films were made on from like the 1920s. So they used, they picked out that and like had to custom create, these filters for their lenses in order to like literally give you a certain look of this is how films in the 1920s were shot um so i'm sure you got a sense of that too right like this is not the modern day black and white this is not just turning saturation down there's a texture there's a a vibe there's a there's a real sense of feeling and and era in the movie yeah you can tell this is a love letter from the eggers to to cinema they they probably really enjoy this is a very like yeah particular style that like you would have to be a big fan of to emulate in any way especially within modern cinema so yeah it's oh it's, for sure i think the amount of research they would have had to do to write and direct this movie like you could tell they they had to be fans of of lovecraft like you said his stories and 1920s 30s film horror like all these things you know it, it really just shows the work of true fans and people who appreciate uh those kind of stories yeah I remember watching a Defoe interview and the accent he uses in this movie doesn't really exist anymore. They had to like go out of their way to find out how this accent was spoken in order to mm -hmm. film the movie properly. Like he could have just done some shanty like Scottish sort of um, Newfoundlander or or Nova Scotian accent, but like they had to go right. to this like very specific accent that Willem Defoe's characters use. And then even and Robert Pattinson's yeah, character. It, it's so it just kind of like just Willem Dafoe was talking himself like I love that they give him the longest monologues in this film and they just let him kind of go off in this what is it like Welsh accent or something like it's Welsh it, it origin it's it's just another world entirely it's like it's it just another world another type of people that used to live here talking like just the the sayings just the inside like be honest with me did you watch this movie with subtitles the first time you watched it because I had to I had to per, like kind of carefully see what they were saying word for word because it, it will go over your head a little bit, you know, unless you speak uh, Welsh. Um, I didn't think it needed it. Um, it doesn't need I, it. Let me correct myself. I did I, watch I it wanted, with subtitles the yeah. first time. I, I avoided it the second time. You did. There you go. Yeah, I I did the same thing. I watched, I had to watch it the first time just so I can get a sense of the dialogue. But the second time, you just kind of want to sit with it and like, just let it let, like listen to it like it's a music like it's like it's you know sometimes in music you can't understand all the words they're saying but you enjoy it anyways it's the same thing it's just very evocative of an era and just you yeah i love that shit and um sorry what were what else were you saying about what willem dafoe and his acting uh well no i was gonna move on to like yeah it was it was used um Black and white was definitely used as more of a love letter to sort of immerse you in a certain time period. But even even yeah. then, I don't think it's like that shallow of a use. They definitely use the black and white to its fullest extent. And I think the way 
they do it the most and it's like indicative like within the first five minutes when he's walking up that stairs they do a lot of this like melding and like a combination of what's in the frame but also what's what's the border of the frame like they manipulate that quite a bit with the black and white that you couldn't do it in in it in any of the colors spectrum yeah and there's one shot that um i i can specifically remember there was a transition of when willem no um it was winslow he was doing some chores it was nighttime um and he's outside and this the camera kind of he's walking i think either he's walking away from the house and the camera kind of goes up into the sky and it's already it's a black sky and it's moving up so the motion is going up and suddenly you can't tell but a cut happens in that black frame and now the camera's moving to the side and that black sky has now become the cabin and Willem Def- or sorry Winslow is now emerging from the cabin so there was just like these really sleek transitions and low key cut ways to cut and that was to the their use of black and black or not black and white. I don't even want to call it a black and white film. It's really more of a black and gray film. Um, yeah, but black that and lack gray. Of color. But they they use it in they combination with the, with the aspects shadows. That yeah, they use it with the aspect ratio to really um to its fullest extent and like that's that scene that always that always that stuck out to me even on my first viewing and like I I it's such a small scene of him just walking up the stairs and going up to the bedroom where you have the aspect ratio shrink because the outline of the door frame makes the aspect ratio shrink even more confining these guys guys to like okay this is like you know know, this is the claustrophobia this is the isolation isolation that these guys are going to experience and here it is exemplified using something that's unique to movies where you can exemplify that through shots in a frame so i thought that's this movie perfectly kind of shows the capabilities of the of cinema and the visual medium. And like you were you were saying, you were kind of hitting it on the head there. There's the use of shallow depth of feel, which is how they separate the characters from their background and their environment. It just adds on top of this use of uh, black and white or gray and just the, the no colors. Like it's just another way to contrast and show separation from the environment and the characters and from the characters to each other um there's no one shot where things look static to you or things look like they kind of blend in like everything is purposely composed purposely crafted um just to kind of tell a story visually so in that sense like it's a weird movie it's a fucking devastatingly weird movie but as a film like as a cinephile i loved how it brought back old school cinema and in its tech techniques and i loved how it can just draw you in as a story also sin city's visuals can work on multiple different mediums whether it be graphic novel or movie um but this movie this story only works as a movie the lighthouse if you know what i mean yeah sin i found sorry go on you could you could you could Display, like you could tell this story in other ways but um i don't think it'd be as effective as it could be unless you made unless the story was made in um consideration of being a movie first because 
that's what this is. This is just like, this is one of my favorite movies right now to just think about. And like, I, I remember telling you like, you have to like physically prepare to watch this movie. Cause it's just, it's just so enticing and so grotesque and so beautiful. And so, um, I don't know. I just really love this movie. Yeah. What would you, um, we're not rating the movies or anything, but would you recommend, like, how would you kind of recommend these movies to people? Um, like I would want to say if you, if you're like, I said already with Sin City, it's, it's a graphic novel kind of comic booky movie, but in the sense of an adult, very adult take on, on those tropes and stuff. So for Lighthouse, what would you kind of say, sum it up to people who should, who want to watch it? It's a psychological thriller. I wouldn't necessarily say horror, but um, it makes you laugh. It makes you scared. It um, almost makes you cry because of how tragic it is. And then when you read into the other stories it draws in from, a lot of the influences, whether it be H.P. Lovecraft, Greek mythology, um, and then the amount of like work and attention to detail. I think you don't even have to enjoy the story, but just enjoy the attention to detail from this from the lighthouse. That's how I'd recommend it. Any other thoughts, Sid? No, Cheney, I think you you kind of summed it up perfectly there. It's uh I would recommend both these movies to people, um for sure. It's just both are enjoyable, both are fantastic acting, fantastic storytelling technically they're like they're very different like they just contrast in in completely different ways and um what are two perfect perfect examples of how to use black and white in modern film anyways um what's that can you say that part again sorry that's just perfectly it's a good way to to these are two good movies that show how to use black and white in modern film Sorry, guys. I'm kind of going through some technical difficulties on my end right now. My internet is kind of pinging up and down, so I'm having trouble hearing Cheney. Um, but I think let's wrap it up. We've had a good long discussion on this so far. Cheney, what are we watching next week? So next week, we're not getting so philosophical. Um, I got interested in two movies because they are both sci-fi movies. They're both summer blockbusters, and they both star Tom Cruise, but they both made no money. So I want to sort of watch and compare and contrast and sort of see the quality of the film based on like just the quality, not the box office. Um, so I've heard good things about, um, oh, what's it? What's the one that you've watched? Edge of Tomorrow. Yes, I've heard really good things about Edge of Tomorrow. Um, I have watched Oblivion, but I watched it like years and years ago and I was really fucking confused by it. So... Um, I'm excited to revisit that. So, yeah, we're watching two sci-fi Tom Cruise movies. We're watching Edge of Tomorrow and we're watching Oblivion. Again, both on Amazon Prime, which are, you know, that's where the that's where that's the place to get the movies. That's where it's at, guys. If fuck Netflix, you know, actually no, Netflix. If you're watching this, hook me up, hook your boy up with the job one of these days. You know, I'm out here. But um, yeah, Amazon Prime is really out here with good movies guys quality shows and movies they're coming at it so we've been we want to watch other stuff honestly like on disney or, or netflix and kind of get to other stuff but i've been having a good time combing through amazon and i know cheney is too 
Um, so yeah, next week is a Tom Cruise sci-fi-a-thon. And uh, it's Edge of Tomorrow and Oblivion. So would love for our listeners to watch along with us. If you've already seen it, then, you know, be ready to share some of your opinions on our Instagram page, which is Mythic Morons. Um, and yeah, Chaney, anything else you'd like to add? Uh, follow us on Instagram. Um, we are trying to keep updates on like what movies we're watching week to week. So it's a good place to stay up to date if you're interested in the show. Um, other than that, thanks for listening. Um, and I guess I'll just sign off. Yeah. So guys, thank you. Thank you. New listeners. If you're new, thank you. Old listeners for coming back. We are the mythic morons. Uh, this is Sid and Cheney signing off guys. Thank you.